Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. April 15th, 1986, is an uncharacteristically warm day in Westminster, Vermont. And if you know Vermont, spring is always much anticipated. So on this day, 36-year-old Linda Moore decides to lay out on a lawn chair in the sun and enjoy the warmth. Her kids were at school, her husband Stephen was at work, and she found herself with some precious alone time. As she's laying on the lawn, the phone rings. She pushes up from the chair, walks through the garden to the side entrance, and answers the phone. It's her husband. Stephen asks her to write out a check for his employee. Says he'll be home in a few hours. So Linda agrees and hangs up. And then she grabs a cookie from the tin on the counter and takes a bite. And at the far end of the hall off the kitchen, she hears a noise. She puts the cookie down on the counter and walks back down the hallway. And then Linda Moore is stabbed to death. You're listening to Dark Valley, an investigative series from Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell. This is episode six.
Dark Valley is possible because you listen. Be an advocate for these cases by rating and reviewing Dark Valley. It really does make a difference. Episodes are released weekly, but if you want to binge the first seven episodes, sign up for a subscription show on Apple Podcasts and get exclusive access to bonus content. From the get-go, Linda's murder seems like an outlier in the Valley Murders. Every woman was attacked while out in the world, while alone and vulnerable. Every woman was also taken to a second location, and then killed. Because of this, the Moore case sparks debate on whether it's related or not. At the time, law enforcement was hesitant to go in any direction concerning the Moore case's connection to those women found murdered in New Hampshire. Rockingham investigator Lieutenant James Candon said, quote, I hate to rule it out. I don't know what they're saying over there and how it relates to us over here. Here's Jane. Linda's case is um, very different from the others in a certain sense. She was attacked at home, broad daylight. She was stabbed multiple times. And I think the stabbing is where they're connecting her with the other cases. She fought, but ultimately died at home. So I've heard that, like, that the stabbing is the thing that connects them, and potentially a pattern or area. A pattern, yeah, a V. Right. Right, but when we look into serial killers, we look into their um, their MO, right? Exactly. And all of the other victims, with yourself included, were encountered outside of a residence, um, victims of opportunity, like you said. But then all three from Claremont were taken elsewhere. They were. Do you think that your attacker was trying to get you to go elsewhere? My attacker was definitely trying to get me to go with him. But I guess with the the way that he stabbed her in the V, you know, with the V shape, that's how they're connecting her with them. Mm -hmm. And with you as well? And with me as well. Was it that pattern? It wasn't. But mine's connected because the amount of times I was stabbed. Mm-hmm. And the the the, um, the size of the knife wounds, I guess, was the big thing too. Oh, like he used potentially the same knife. Yes. And here's Doctor Philpin. I I did two workups on that. One was if it's connected, and the other is if it's not connected. And the reason for that came from Eleanor McQuillan, who was the medical examiner at the time. And we were all at a meeting, and she said, uh, we were talking about the possibility of the cases being connected. And she said, well, this one could well be because we don't know what he intended to do when he went there. You know, maybe he intended to take her with him, you know, in which case sometime later, body or remains would be found in a wooded area like the others. So she was the one that uh, 
kind of got us all thinking about the possibilities. So we worked it up both ways. Linda lived in her dream home, a large white colonial on a bend of Saxton's River. There were neighbors around, but the house sat back from these and was bordered by the river and deep, dense forest. Linda and her husband Stephen had two children, Christopher and Allison. By all accounts, the Moors were doing it. They were living the American dream. Linda was active in her community and at Central Elementary, where her two kids attended. In fact, she'd recently been to the school to help the kids prepare for a spring musical. Linda was also the former president of the Rockingham and Vermont Hospital Auxiliary, meaning she led other volunteers in raising money for the hospital system. She was also a member of the New England Hospital Association. The papers cite that Linda was instrumental in forming the infant car seat program at Rockingham Memorial Hospital. Knowing this, I can't help but think about that theory in Claremont, that nurses were being targeted. While Linda was not necessarily a nurse or a healthcare worker, she did have occasion to be in the hospitals of that area. Is that potentially where her killer first saw her? Or did he happen by the Moore residence and see Linda sunbathing? Was she just another victim of opportunity? We also know that Linda liked to have a good time. Here's Dr. Philpin. Uh, she, she was a little on the wild side. Linda? Yes. She, she, she'd had an affair. He knew about it. It was a long time before. It, it, it had been resolved. They had a, um, they coexisted, you know, parallel living. And he was very involved with his business. And uh, she, she had a big uh, social schedule. Um, you know, not all of it was uh, an affair. Uh, that, I only know one time that, that that occurred. And again, he knew about it, the husband knew about it. But she had, she and some of her girlfriends would would go uh, drinking, uh, dancing, uh, usually down to Bellows Falls. So it was a you know it, it was a different kind of situation in the house. Far be it from me to characterize Linda and Stephen's marriage as rocky, or cast judgment on someone for having an affair. Like Dr. Philpin said, this was in the past and Stephen had known about the affair. That spring, Linda also started keeping the books for her husband's company. So, by mid-morning on April 15th, she may have sorted the paperwork and glanced out the window to catch the sun coming out from behind the clouds. At 11.45 a.m., one of Linda's neighbors said they saw her on a lawn chair in her front yard. Then, around 12.40, Linda heard the telephone ring inside. She lazily got up and wandered back into the house through the side door to speak to her husband briefly. Stephen said he called back again a little later, but Linda didn't pick up. She, uh, 
had time from when she entered. The, the, you haven't been to the house, right? No, I haven't. Okay. There's the door that she would have entered, a hallway. And then immediately to the left is the doorway that leads into an area where the kitchen is to the right and the living room is to the left. She had time to get up, enter the house, go through that doorway. She went to her right. She took out, I want to say it was a cookie, and took a bite out of it, left it on the counter. There was something else she was doing that involved being in the kitchen. And, and then she went back from the kitchen to that doorway Precisely why, no one knows. My guess is that she heard the outer door close at the other end of that, that hall. And that she went to that doorway and that was where they met up. It was a blitz assault, no hesitation. I don't know how many stab wounds. Um, it was clear to me that this was someone who knew probably from military training, uh, how to kill, um, you know, in an efficient way. Was there overkill? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it overkill. No, uh, there was a struggle and she broke some fingernails. He ended up this is why I say military. He ended up, he had stabbed her a couple of times. There were some defensive wounds. He spun her around and then went like that. Dr. Philpin mimes drawing a knife across someone's throat while stabilizing the victim's head. That's the military kill. He would have had to have had a, a large, very sharp knife to do that. The, um, the, the reason that's known is that there was blood spatter uh, on the wall, which would have been 12 feet away. Right? So that's the throat spray. And then there was, you know, a, a very large pool of blood right in that area. The body fell to her right so that she was partially in, her feet were down by the doorway, her upper body was into a portal that led into the living room. And that was how her husband found her. Newspapers from the time reported that Linda had been stabbed at least 25 times. In a journal called Forensic Science International, Overkill, quote, indicates the infliction of massive injuries by far exceeding the extent necessary to kill the victim. It's mostly associated with sex-motivated homicides, where injuries, generally stabbing, are directed to significant sexual parts of the body. So by this definition, and although I'm no expert, I would have to disagree with Dr. Philpin. We know Linda's jugular vein was severed, and that would have been sufficient to kill her. So the additional 24 or so stabs and cuts can technically be classified as overkill. However, 
There were no explicit injuries that I know of to sexual parts of Linda's body. But Dr. Philpin has some interesting thoughts on the sexual nature of these knife murders. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is Andrew from the Scary Mysteries Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and creepy true crime compilations on Mondays. And on Wednesdays, we have our Twisted News episodes, where we get you up to speed on the most terrifying and strange news stories currently happening all around the world. We're covering the topics you want to hear about. Missing persons, killers, UFOs, and more. Best of all, we don't waste your time with any fluff or fillers. Just stray to the true crime details. So go check out the Scary Mysteries podcast, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. The phrase, when you say a crime has been sexually motivated, I learned early that that doesn't mean a sexual act occurred. Sexually motivated, perhaps, uh, but it, but like I say, it, it doesn't mean a, a sexual act occurred. That's a that's an interesting distinction that you make between the motivation and the sexual act. I imagine that's played into a lot of the profiles that you've developed over the years as well, looking at where uh, a motivation may lie. Well. Uh, you know, I, I think there's some confusion about motive and motivation. Motive is, you know, when we're talking about money, uh, revenge, things along those lines. Motivation is a, is a deeper psychological uh, concept that basically has to do with the, the way you live your life on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes the issue of motivation can be missed entirely in cases. Uh, for example, uh, a serial killer where there's no apparent motive. You could say it was sexually motivated, but there's no apparent motive. The, the motivation there is to make people suffer. Uh, the motivation there is to take ownership of another human being. The motivation is to uh, terrorize uh, someone or a family or whatever. BTK in Kansas was uh, w- would terrorize his uh, families of victims before killing them. So there, I think that distinction has to be made. It's not simply motive. It's also motivation. You grow up with a uh, a view of yourself and what you perceive as the world. And these contribute to the, the kind of motivation that you're going to have uh, for, for doing anything. May, maybe your motivation becomes 
something new, something uh, fairly innocuous, uh, being uh, a star football player, or whatever. But it's that portion, uh, relatively small portion of uh, the population where the issue is something different. And uh, the sources for that sometimes come out in interviews, but not always. If I'm going to kill you, my motive might be to take your money. My motivation might be to terrorize you, torture you, own you. And then as an afterthought, I might take your money, I might not. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about control as motivation. To me, in in reviewing, you know, cases where rape occurs or indeed like these premeditated murders, it seems like the assailant wants to control the situation. Absolutely. Can you speak on that? Well, to uh, seize your victim, take your victim, take ownership of that person, frighten, terrorize that person, perhaps torture person, but you have complete ownership now of that human being, and then ultimately to destroy. So that that's pretty clearly the steps that, that are followed when you move from one, one view of um, a criminal episode to another view. Um, you can move through the phases watching that. But ownership, control, power, and ultimately to destroy. These will come up to one extent or another in most cases. At around 3 p.m., Stephen returned home with his employee. He walked into the kitchen, and there in the adjoining living room was Linda, crumpled on the floor. Hey, what are you doing down there? He called. He moved closer, and then he saw the blood. His wife had been murdered right there in their home, and she had died beneath a portrait of her son, Christopher. When police arrived, Stephen was in shock. And shock is unique to each person. Not everyone screams and cries. Stephen apparently was deceivingly calm, numb, some might say. He must have been covered in blood from futilely trying to save his wife's life. And as police began to examine Linda's body, Stephen went to write that check he had talked to his wife about only hours before. Police zeroed in on Linda's husband, Stephen, pretty quickly. They thought Stephen's behavior was bizarre at the crime scene. And Jane has a lot of thoughts on this. That poor man has been through so much. 
Of course, he was uh, a suspect, their main suspect. Her husband, you mean? Yes, her husband. And um, <laughs> over the years, I, I, I mean, they, they reinvestigate her case through the cold case unit. And um, they've, he's, they keep going back to him. And this man has passed like two or three polygraph tests. He's got a rock-solid alibi. They, they can't find any physical evidence on him. And they've cleared him so many times. But every time someone new comes into the cold unit, cold case unit, they reinvestigate him again. It's crazy. That poor man has been through so much. And of course, every time they investigate him or it's you know in the paper that he's a suspect, small towns, People read it, they believe it. So there's always talk around Claremont and Saxons River that, oh, he's the one that killed his wife. You know, people just talk about it all the time and, and they don't know. You know, I, I just, that poor man has been through so much. You know, Dennis was the main suspect in my case. Really? He was. He, uh, we didn't find out till uh, about a week after my attack. I was still in the hospital. I was out of um, ICU. And um, the detectives came up to visit me in the room, and they said, oh, by the way, Dennis is no longer a suspect. <laughs> and they've asked me if it was Dennis. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they were like, oh, oh don't worry about it. You know, we're just doing our jobs. You know, we had to investigate him. I'm like, well, come to find out, Dennis was telling me they brought him in for questioning. And, of course, they're young. He was only, like, 20, what, 20, 21. And he was with a bunch of his friends at the fair that night. And, of course, some of them were drinking. So when they, they interview his friends, one said he had a blue shirt on, one said he had a red shirt on. Well, so, of course, they, they interview him, the, the detectives, and they're like, well, why did you change your shirt? He's like, I never changed my shirt. Oh, my God. So, so yeah, he was investigated, too. Oh, jeez. But uh, uh, Linda's husband is just, he's been through a lot. Right. Was and it ever public that Dennis was a suspect? I don't know. I have no idea. Because I imagine that would have changed. I mean, it's still horrible to you. Yeah. For, for Dennis. Well, but. You know, I thank God. That's one of the reasons I thank God I'm alive. Because what if I didn't survive? You know? How much would they have tried to pin this on him? You know, that's scary. Scary. Mm -hmm. Since Dr. Philpin characterized Linda's attack as, quote, efficient, I asked him if he or the police considered Linda Moore a murder-for-hire situation. Could it have been a hit? No. Um, I'm sure there have been hits that have been done as blitz assault with a knife, but there haven't been that many. If you're in a place where you have to risk uh, any kind of noise, a silencer is very easy to come by these days, as is any weapon you want. 
and I think probably a 25 caliber with a silencer um, would be the most efficient way to do it. From the evidence I've seen, there's nothing that indicates to me that Stephen Moore had the motive or opportunity to hire someone to kill his wife. But I'm curious about Stephen. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get a hold of him. But then one afternoon, Jane and I stop for lunch at a local barbecue joint. We get to talking about Linda again. Jane gives me this sly look and says, You know, I met her husband. Jane starts talking about going to meet Stephen Moore. I quickly hit record on my phone, so please pardon the poor audio. A very good friend of mine, well, they're still best friends of ours, Kevin and Julie. Kevin's sister lived up here in um, Bellows Falls, and she started dating Steve, and they just happened to have conversation one night. She did not know anything about Linda. She knew that his wife died, but that's all she knew. And then they were talking one night, and he actually told her what happened. And he told her, yeah, she's, um, she's supposedly one of the Connecticut River Valley serial killing victims. And she's like, oh my God, I know a Connecticut, I know a Connecticut River Valley serial killer, survivor. And came up and met him. What was your conversation like with him? He was very drunk. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like, because you guys were having a good time? Or because... Mm-hmm. I came up, and I went to Kevin's sister Cindy's house. And, um... She brought me to Steve's house. He knew I was coming. And, um... When I got there, he was very nice. He was very nice to me. But he was also very intoxicated. And Cindy was really upset about it. And um, we stayed there for about a half hour, maybe maybe close to an hour. I think we had one beer with him. And then we left. And when we left and we were on the way back to her house, she was like, he is not like that all the time. He got so, she's like, he got hammered because he was so nervous about meeting you. And I was like, oh my God. I wish he had not done that. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. I can't imagine how much of Stephen Moore's life has been twisted to reflect those sidelong glances, those half-whispered rumors, much less the heat of multiple generations of investigators calling him a murderer. Of suspects, however, there was one lead that seemed promising. On the day of Linda's murder, someone saw a young man, a bit on the heavy side, jogging through the neighborhood. He had a backpack on and wore thick, black-framed glasses. The Brattleboro reformer said that a neighbor had seen this man walk toward the side entrance of the Moore home at about 12.40. This paper is the only report with a time of the sighting, and according to Linda's husband, Stephen, this was precisely when he called the home, 
and Linda left the yard to go inside and answer the phone. Law enforcement circulated a composite sketch of this person, along with a description. Quote, a white male subject, approximately 20 to 25 years old. He had short, dark hair and was between 5'8 and 5'10. Dr. Philpin himself even did some work to try and locate him. My first office that I had in Springfield was over a, an optician. And so that came in quite handy, identifying the glasses as military issue. The community's response to this composite sketch was enormous. Law enforcement ended up administering 25 polygraph examinations to men who fit this description. Eventually, police found this young man. He was in the military, but apparently he was jogging around Linda's neighborhood around the time of her murder. From statements released by police, it seems they more so believed that this man was a key witness and not necessarily the killer. Though I'm not clear on the details, Dr. Philpin says police quickly ruled this guy out as a suspect. Presumably, he had an alibi. He, he was never a suspect. Oh, no. They, like, maybe he witnessed. No, it was, it was a, one of two or three people of interest that we ruled out in a matter of days. Do you recall how you ruled him out? Well, I, the, uh, the, the military guy was, um, he was home on leave. He did, he, I don't remember exactly. I remember it was something that the, that the police determined in, in uh, talking with him, just like he would not have been capable. He, he, she was taller than him. And for him to reach up to her, to her throat, and then there's Bert. And then there was a guy who who, um, who saw the whole thing happen. Now, the, the irony here is that he was able to describe the living room of the house without ever having been in the house. Wait, he he's saying he's an eyewitness? Um, telepathically. Okay, well, uh, how? <laughs> uh, he was seen walking on the road, so he was questioned. And he immediately went into this wacky trance posture kind of thing, where he started describing, frantically describing the uh, living room. And he was right. And his description was perfect. As far as we knew, he'd never been in that house before. Uh, I can't remember if he actually named someone as being the killer, but he wasn't saying he did it. He, he was saying he was in the house, in the living room, watching it happen. But in his mind. In his mind. It turns out investigators more readily believed that this man, Bert, was less a medium and more a murderer. Uh, I mean, I imagine the police would be suspicious of that. Yeah, we we bit skeptical, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying that visions don't happen, because I don't know what's out there. Oh, they do. They do. 
So whether Bert's claim to clairvoyance is legitimate or not, I can't say. I know it would certainly give me pause as an investigator. They checked him out thoroughly and discovered he actually had an airtight alibi. He was working in an entirely different town that day. And though it does seem like this man's alibi was corroborated, could he have known who the real killer was? Had someone confessed to him and this was just a way of unburdening his conscience? Or did he really have a gift? I reached out to Bert to get his side of the story, but unfortunately I never heard back. By 2007, Detective Lieutenant William Jenkins inherited the Moore case. Jenkins told the Brattleboro reformer that there were, quote, stacks and stacks of her case file. So it seems his predecessors worked this case hard. Linda's son, Christopher Moore, who is now a civil attorney in Bellows Falls, Vermont, was interviewed by the reformer and asked about his mother's murder being connected to the so-called Connecticut River Valley murders. Chris said this, quote, there were knife killings before and after, north and south, east and west of my mom's murder. He said the man who attacked Jane had to be, quote, eliminated as a suspect. According to Jane, Chris remains a vocal advocate for these cases and adamantly maintains that his father is not guilty. In the 37 years that followed, no charges were ever filed against Stephen Moore. Linda's case like the rest of those women's cases in New Hampshire, went cold. Next time on Dark Valley, the Valley Killer strikes for the last time in Vermont, under cover of the storm of the century. He lays in wait at a rest stop on I-91, watching to see who walks up to use the lonely payphone half buried in snow. Dark Valley is produced, written, and edited by me, Jennifer Amell. It's also made possible by executive producers with Crawlspace Media, Tim Polari, and Lance Reinsterna. Follow us on social, at Dark Valley Show. Production assistants include Amanda Bedard and Marianne Stone-White. Show art by Pamela Robinson. Original theme song by Jennifer Paig. Please see the show notes for additional music credits, courtesy of Pixabay. And if you have a tip for any of these cases, please call the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or the Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit at 802-244-8781. Or you can write to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. Until next time. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but... 
feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.